Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. Joining me is Dana Prostos, founder and CEO of the architectural firm Indigo River. In this episode, we're going to learn the fundamentals of architecture and climate adaptation. Dina and I discuss the crucial role architects play in advocating for sustainable and resilient design practices that emphasize climate change risks. We also discuss Indigo River's focus on waterfront projects in flood-prone areas and their incorporation of resilience and adaptation into designs, especially in the New York region. Dina also addresses the ethical dilemmas of designing for climate change. This was a fascinating discussion for me. How does one behave as an ethical architect in the age of climate change? Well, Dina takes us down that path and shares how she does it. Okay, upcoming episodes. Susan Crawford, a law professor at Harvard University, is up next, and she's coming on to discuss her new book, Charleston, Race, Water, and the Coming Storm. I'm also in the middle of a buyout episode sponsored by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Looking forward to sharing those. Okay, let's join Dana Prostos and learn how the architectural sector is taking on climate adaptation. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me today is Dina Prastos. Dina is the founder and CEO of Indigo River. Indigo River is a woman-owned transdisciplinary design firm focused on progressive waterfront architecture, resilience, and climate adaptation. Hey, Dina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me. Very excited about this. You're my first kind of true architect. I've had people that kind of, I think, done in that space, but not really an architect in the architect sector. So I'm excited to have you on and talk about what you guys are doing there. But let's just start off. What's Indigo River? So Indigo River, as you mentioned, is a women-owned transdisciplinary design firm. We focus on a specific typology where land meets water, so where nature meets man-made. And some of the types of projects that we work on include ports, marinas, ferry terminals, landings, other waterfront infrastructure like piers, docks, wharves, keys, even you know smaller scale of boat ramps and launches and moorings, and particularly focusing lately in flood-prone areas. So you have a very interesting background. You're in New York City right now, but you've come all the way from Alaska. Can you give us a somewhat brief professional background? How did you end up from Alaska making that journey to New York? Sure. So yeah, born and raised in Alaska. I came to the East Coast for school and I studied undergrad. I studied architecture. I have a bachelor's of architecture from NJIT and I received a master's in civil engineering. When I finished my academics, I went straight into the field and I worked for a contractor. So I have kind of the design architecture background, the, the civil engineering design background, and then a more practical understanding of how things really go together in the field. And after that first experience, I made the full circle back through design engineering on some high profile waterfront projects through to another architecture firm where I received my license and saw the opportunity to really focus in on this typology of the waterfront as an architect, which is a little bit atypical for architects to specialize in an area of, or a typology like this. And so I, I launched Indigo River to do just that and to focus on this waterfront typology. So I have a very, I guess, simple view of architecture. It's, my, it's obviously very tough, but I, is it something that you need like a master's? I always think of those students who have to spend overnights finishing their projects and it's this awful experience, but do you, to kind of get ahead or do you have to get a master's, do you have to get a PhD? What's a typical thing for an architect? So as of lately, there are more 
tracks to become a licensed architect, but traditionally you either needed a four-year undergrad and a three-year master's along with, you know, three to five years of experience working under a licensed professional. And now there are some different hybrid programs where my program, for instance, was a bachelor's of architecture, not, it wasn't a major program, but it was a professional degree program where I came out with a five-year program able to sit for the licensure exam without needing a master's, but I did need additional experience. And since I've graduated and become licensed, there are other programs that are available that are more like a, where you can take an internship during school and kind of complement both the education and the experience in tandem and then sit for the exam. But traditionally, architects have anywhere from, you know, four to seven years of education and a total of, on average, 13 years of experience before they get licensed. Oh boy, that's a lot. All right. So any desire to go back to Alaska and do this kind of work or you're, you're there in New York? You know, if you would have asked me that five or 10 years ago, I would have said absolutely not. But being that I, I do focus on waterfront and shoreline work and coastal work and half of our country's waterfront and shoreline happens to be in the great state of Alaska, I would not be surprised. And I, I do keep my eye out for opportunities to go back for work. Well, can I just say you would be nuts to do that because your food choices would be very limited, but that's okay. If it's your home state, well, we'll deal with that. All right. Again, let's. I'm still wanting to get some of the basics here around architecture. And so what exactly do they do? I've interviewed landscape architects and there's different fields that kind of, are, you probably communicate with these people. But when I think of architect, I think you're designing the schematics for a house or a building and you have that background in civil engineering and you think of them building bridges, but what do you guys do literally? An architect is licensed to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment. And so a couple of nuances with that is health and safety largely, and as of lately, are more and more regulated by code. And so one of the things that as of late we're focusing on is really zeroing in on that definition of welfare and has as it evolves and changes how we continue to protect the welfare of the public. And the other part of that is, you know, in the in the built environment and what does that mean? And most, I think as you you kind of summed up your working understanding of what an architect typically does, yeah, design residences, design buildings. And that certainly is what architects do, but there's a whole lot of other agencies that architects have to focus on and assert their agency in other fields as related to the built environment. And that includes infrastructure. So one thing just to differentiate the architecture profession from other disciplines within architecture, engineering, construction, particularly engineers, you look at the engineering professions and how many different specializations there are. And there are mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and civil engineers and biochemical engineers. There's so many different disciplines that have allowed them to become more specialized and focused. And meanwhile, architecture has kind of taken this generalist approach. And historically, the architect was the master builder. And it was kind of from the Renaissance being able to coordinate all the different disciplines and have a role in all the different stages of the design and build process. But as we've evolved, the architect has kind of backed into the corner and continued claiming buildings. But meanwhile, there are other professions that have in other tracks that have emerged that are specialties, which I would argue are still under the purview and under the kind of jurisdiction of what an architect is licensed to do. And they do include things like landscape architecture and planning and not that those parallel disciplines shouldn't be specializations in their own right. But I, I think in the belief of many architects is that that still falls under the umbrella of what an architect does. And so, yeah, we can talk a little bit more about, you know, specialization versus generalization. But as you mentioned, yeah, architects, People kind of misperceive that it's about buildings. And actually, there are many states that residences, you know, single family homes aren't required to have an architect sign off on them even. So it's kind of this question of, you know, what is the market share evolving to be for the architect and for the profession? 
I'm going to get into questions related to this field of architecture and climate change, but your your own journey, you're relatively, I think, young in your field, young professional in your field, and yet you're doing adaptation. Where did that come from? Because it wasn't necessarily schooling. Was it post-schooling where you really jumped into that space? Yeah, it came through my experience and the exposure of the types of projects that I worked on. And I'll commend kind of the engineering disciplines and many of the different specialty engineering tracks that I've worked with and marine engineers and coastal engineers and kind of at the fore of climate adaptation work. They're, you know, constantly dealing with natural forces and unprecedented events and in the most exposed way. And so I think working alongside and in tandem with some of those engineers really opened my eyes to the opportunity that architects in the field of architecture have to embrace, you know, protecting the health, safety, and welfare in the built environment. And that includes our infrastructure. All right, let's just maybe get some of your peers mad right up front. <laughs> We're going to talk about architecture and how it's been addressing climate change. And you, there, it could be the schools, it could be actual private firms, it could be the associations out there. And I'm going to ask you about your involvement with some of the associations a, a bit later on. But what grade would you give overall? Maybe there's an individual school that's kicking butt, but like overall the field of architecture around climate change adaptation, how are they doing? So honestly, in, in terms of climate change specifically and adaptation specifically, it is an emerging area of focus. And, and that's great. I don't know that I would give it more than a, a C plus, honestly. But if we look more specifically at sustainability, sure, that can maybe get a B, a B plus. But even still, I mean, the, the profession, understanding also there's a kind of a, a lag between what is taught in school and what is practiced in reality. And so the certainly the architecture profession is responding to the climate crisis by incorporating, you know, sustainable design practices into building design and construction. And that includes the use of renewable energy sources, the selections of materials with, you know, low carbon footprint, implementation of green roofs and walls, integrating natural ventilation and lighting, and, and the, focusing on conserving resources or minimizing waste. So architects are, are playing a role, and there's kind of a larger role to be played, which I don't want to upset anyone, but certainly we do play a role, but we don't quite play the key role that we really have agency to in terms of advocating for policies and regulations that support certainly sustainable design, but moreover, climate adaptation in terms of, you know, design practice and construction practice. So there are a, a subset of architecture firms and a subset of schools that engage in research and development of new technologies and techniques for reducing the environmental impact of buildings, but it is certainly not mainstream. And that's also maybe just a function of the model of kind of how architects are contracted and what they're contracted to do versus what the responsibility they have. There's a divide there. And what I mean by that is a, a client comes to an architect asking, you know, for a very specific program often, you know, most typically, and, and they have a site. And they're not always looking to pay for, you know, what has the least environmental impact. And they're not always motivated there. And, and the same thing, it, at education, you learn some of these tools, but in practice, I would say sustainability is further ahead than climate adaptation and, and resiliency work, certainly. But there, there is certainly a lag. You're out there really engaging a lot of people on this, and I'm, and I'm trying to, I'm probably missing some, but I would think that there's probably two areas or two groups of thinkers in the architecture space. There's those at the universities, but then there's actually those practitioners in the private sector. Which group do you think is doing better on the issue of climate adaptation? Academia. I think that the educational spotlighting, the opportunity is ahead of the execution and implementation in practice. So like if you're getting a let's even an undergrad degree and you make it to a master's degree, you're seeing more and more like actual courses. And again, you mentioned sustainability. I talk about that quite a bit. Sustainability and adaptation are not the same thing. And do you sense right. your, your peers <laughs> really understand that if you were no. going? 
And it's, it's such a pet peeve of mine when, especially when professionals kind of will use whether sustainability and resiliency or climate adaptation interchangeably as if they do mean the same thing. And it drives me nuts. And it's, it it is a concern. And that's what I mean by in, you know, implementation and execution are not aligned with even the, you know, the students that are coming out with more progressive and forward thinking, although albeit, you know, less practical experience in terms of execution, but they're given the exposure to at least understand the terminology and what the impacts can be. Okay, this is a rabbit hole, but just came to me is that <laughs> you're you're probably seeing this a lot more, but ESG, and let me just say, I, I think it's a positive development. The private sector is trying, it's the, you know, sustainability 2.0, or, uh, that's how I kind of view it. <laughs> and a lot of people don't even understand that it's out. And I, I just recently asked someone who works, he's like a, a water person for an environmental firm, 20 years just in that space. I'm like, have you ever heard of ESG? He's like, no. I'm like, huh. And then uh, an urban planner, top of his game in the adaptation space. I mean, just leading expert asked him if he ever heard of ESG. He's like, no. Because if you looked on LinkedIn now, you see ESG popping up by everybody's name. What are you sensing in the architect space that is that maybe overlapping adaptation? What's going on there? So I, yeah, and that's what I meant by architects not playing enough of a key role in certainly advocating, but even being aware of the policy and regulation that supports sustainable design and, and construction practices and, and just operations and corporate being able to carry out ethically and responsibly a corporation and their practices. And it, it is of concern because architects very much are kind of in a hole of, and in a cycle of getting work that they're able to maybe be a little bit progressive, but a lot of the clients and by and large, most clients aren't asking for above and beyond the minimum of what the code requires. And so that's a whole nother discussion of, well, why is the code what it is? How long does it take to change the code? What do we need to do to get the code to change? And that lag and bringing those two from, you know, what we're capable of and what we're required to do a little bit closer together to align with a a better future for generations to come. Let's talk about what you're doing there at Indigo River and help people actually visualize. We're sort of talking at 30,000 foot level, but you share a project with me that incorporates resilience and adaptation. Let us visualize and understand what that actually means, what you're doing. Sure. So I'll talk about a project that's currently under construction. We have quite a few still in design phase, but we've worked on Vertical Film Studio in New York in Astoria, Queens, and it is a waterfront site. So we initially got involved with, you know, several other firms, a star architecture firm, notable national worldwide engineering firm, and several other consultants as well. And the scope that we initially inherited was working on the shoreline, working on stabilizing the shoreline and, you know, a quaint waterfront park that was to be there open for the public. And during the design process, it became apparent that there were different philosophies, different approaches, different awareness levels around what it meant to build on this site and happen to be in a flood prone area and what the programming could even be on the ground level and what the strategy should be to mitigate risk in terms of sea level rise and storm surge and different, you know, flood risk concerns. And so we got involved in another capacity to help kind of organize that discussion and come up with, you know, several strategies And we went so far as to model the different, the resiliency efforts to, you know, return on investment for the building owner, you know, as related to risk assessment and looking at economic loss estimations to improve the returns and the resilience for the building and the proposed systems. So that's an example of one area, just working with the water, working on the water, waterfront infrastructure, seawalls, riprap, and then it's translated into really looking at adaptive solutions for flood mitigation and specifically for, you know, through the different lenses of 
whether it's wet flood proof, dry flood proof, where the different programming goes, what the emergency evacuation scenarios look like, and then some financial modeling as well to make the case and, and help make the selection of what strategy they went forward with. And so that, that project is currently under construction. And we ended up having kind of a hybrid solution of, of different areas that we allowed. And by code, we're allowed to make a wet flood proof area, meaning the water can come in during the hazard scenario and then recede out and not put anyone in danger. And then we had other areas that, you know, more occupiable spaces that needed to be dry flood proof that wouldn't allow the water to come in. So I'm thinking this is the sausage making that you've talked about <laughs> with engineers and you are the architects. And it, so sea level rise is the climate, the sort of direct climate impact that you're factoring in here, obviously flooding related. How does that come in in regards to the science? So, I mean, you want to factor in sea level rise, but what kind of maps are you looking at? What kind of projections? How are you incorporating that into the process? So, yeah, and that, and that is something that is maybe more unique to our practice in that traditional architecture, is it's not common to have forward-looking designs based on future climate projections. So we do look at, you know, we've modeled different scenarios and different wave climates as well for coastal areas to understand what the risks are. We map them out, whether it's a category one, two, three, four, or five, or whether it's over time, you know, to the year 2050, to the year 2075, whatever the, the goals are. And that's the conversation we have very early on with clients about what the risks are and then what the what the goals are for the level of protection that we should be designing for. Okay, I got two part question now. So the first off, the clients, when you're showing them early on in the process, which is good before they spend too much money on construction, is that do they look at you when you're like, okay, here's the 2070 map for sea level rise? I mean, New York, I get is progressive, but do you have anyone that's just like, are you nuts? That's going to cost a lot more. <laughs> uh, yeah, we actually, we, so we had a, a kickoff meeting yesterday for a project and we're designing two piers and I put up on the screen just, you know, to be transparent with where we're coming from, but to also be a little bit you know, provocative of here are two different category storm surge levels and showing the island under whether it was, I think, 11 feet and 21 feet of water for these different scenarios. And the client's eyes kind of bulged, like, are, are we expected to design to this level? And, and no, that wasn't the expectation, but it, it was my intention to kind of highlight the risk that is there and to also, being an island, highlight the risk that there are, you know, emergency evacuation procedures that one of the peers on the island should be considering in an emergent scenario, in an extreme hazard, which is kind of the last peer standing. And where would people be able to evacuate from? So it becomes a very real security concern as well, just again, to highlight. And if the client says, no, we're not doing any of that, we don't want to move forward with it. All right, that's their choice. But we've given them the information and and made the risk known up front. Okay, I want to have a discussion about ethics in a little bit, but I wonder in that scenario there that another architecture firm comes in and says, well, we'll design you one and we're not too worried about 2070. And that happens, right? We do. Yeah, that happens all the time. And that happens a lot even with private clients, well, you know, someone who owns a waterfront property that they want to build kind of at the, the base flood elevation. They don't even, they don't care to elevate even a foot or two feet without the understanding that, you know, that that'll give them, whether it's, you know, 10 years on the back end, 20 years on the back end and more, we have these conversations and it is kind of an, an ethical and moral dilemma of, all right, well, they want to do the bare minimum. We know that this structure isn't going to last through any event or they want to rebuild something that's failed before. And the truth is, if I stick to my morals and principles and say, I don't want to do that, it's kind of the bare minimum. I know it's not going to be safe for the public, you know, after you go on and flip this property and sell it. But there are 10 architects behind me that will take it in a, in a second. It's a challenge with, within the profession as well, just to understand what that minimum operating standard is. And that minimum operating standard is the code. Well, what do you mean the code? What I don't, I lost that track of that. What do you mean? 
so building code will say, you know, what the design and, and FEMA has regulation out as to what the design okay. flood elevation is. And so for some clients, it's hard to justify doing anything beyond that. I see. I see. All right. You know what? I might as well just transition to that part of this discussion because you're talking all about it. But I just, I, partly I want to go back to the, all the partners you work with outside of the client, like the engineering firms. Is there ever a scenario where you're like, okay, here's the, and I'm going to just use something simple like that 2070 sea level rise projection where your engineering partners are like, are, Nah, we don't agree with that. Do you butt heads like that or you kind of work with people that are on the same page with you all the time? No, I mean, it, it's a mixed bag. So sometimes we'll have a team that is kind of all on the same page about managing for the risk. And sometimes the team is on the same page, but the client isn't. And so we'll often prepare a memo and have, you know, different inserts from the different specialties and the different disciplines about what the impacts are to their systems, to their scope. And we'll present it in, you know, memo or, or report form to a client to make a decision on. But there are other times where one engineer will say they don't want to, they're not comfortable designing to that criteria and it'll get kind of reshuffled to be, you know, who inherits that scope then, meaning who inherits that risk as well. All right. Once again, putting you on the spot, because I think this is fascinating, this idea. And I had this conversation with a landscape architect about, and they refused to take business where they thought sea level rise projections, but we didn't really explore that much. But as the architects, you get certified and there's sort of, I guess, some unspoken code of ethics, but you'd mentioned other firms will come in and actually do this work. And so let's say there's that 2070 projection and they're doing something that you're like, we know this is going to potentially flood, but it's so far out. Would you go on record? Like you're just, you're saying that you're at some conference for architects saying that was unethical behavior. I mean, is it that black and white? Because, you know, do we believe in these projections or don't we? So it, yeah, it, I don't think it's that black and white, but it, it is certainly gray in different shades of gray. So on, on the one hand, selfishly, but also in terms of my responsibility to the public, I'm not designing something necessarily for the client. Surely the client is contracting me and paying me for a service, but my license is to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public, regardless of who that client is and what their demands are. And so there, there is a way to navigate that and, and diplomatically and within, you know, the responsibility that we have. And it, it falls back to kind of what that minimum operating standard is. And so my approach typically is to outline the vulnerabilities as identified and to educate the client as best I can with whatever the, you know, the best resources and tools I have are and to explain, you know, these are the risks. These are our recommendations and, and you know, more than one often and kind of show the return on investment or the, the SWOT analysis for each and let the client make that decision. And sometimes they'll make the decision and whether or not we continue working with them directly, not in a bad way, but whether or not they want to take the production services elsewhere, that's fine. We're not necessarily an architecture engineering production facility. We're looking to educate and advise in our area of specialty, which is waterfront and climate adaptation. Oh, I'm going to do a whole episode around the ethics of adaptation. Because <laughs> this is making me think more about it. Of course, it comes up with my episodes. But here, I'm going to give you another scenario. And you know, with 2070, you could really just punt that. That's just a projection. It's so far out in the future. But you think about California, which actually is doing some amazing planning around climate change and climate adaptation, but where they're failing big time. And you talk to people who live out there is local governments allowing people to build in the wildfire zone, right? You're just probably yeah. familiar with this. Oh, we see these houses burn and like the ones that are historically there, there's not much you can do about that. You're not necessarily going to expect them to move, but they are still building in areas that are super high risk of wildfire. Okay. First, you got the local government who says, all right, you're allowed to build there, but then someone wants to build a nice $10 million mansion and they're going to go find an architect to design a home to do that. Does that architect have an ethical consideration not to design that home, especially when it's so clear cut? And this could happen 
this year or next year or something like that. What, it does how would, happen, yeah. It's, how would you view the ethics of that decision? Is there not enough policing going on in, with your associations and all that? To, sorry, you shouldn't be encouraging people to... Yeah, I certainly shouldn't be encouraging, but at the end of the day, there is law, there's code, there's regulation around what can be built and where. And so is it the architect's responsibility to stand higher moral ground when they know 10 architects behind them have the same opportunity and likely one of them will do it in a moment. I don't know. Personally, I I try not to build things that I know are going to fail in an area where it's unlikely for anything to succeed unless the client is willing to make that investment and to see it as an investment and not as an expense. And so that's, yeah, that's a, a choice, but it's also kind of a cutthroat market where architects are undercutting each other rather than looking to expand the ability of the profession to get atypical work and not just kind of race to the bottom of the barrel in the same type of work. I think there's plenty of opportunity, but it's not the reality. It's, you know, a client comes with good money for a project that's legally allowed to go through. Some architects will say yes to that. Absolutely. Boy, that's tough. And I've already forgotten, but you you were mentioning this sort of code of conduct for architect. Remember you were saying that, what's it again? It was, it's like not exposing people to danger at the very beginning. What was it again? So the responsibility, the license or architects are licensed to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public and the built environment. Right. And that's a code of con. When, what is that technically called again? That's just a... That's our license. That's what we're licensed to do. To someone building in the wildfire zone, are they kind of breaking that license rule? Yeah. you can, I mean, you can argue that it's not protecting the public to have something built in an area where you know it's going to fail. Right. Because I'm just thinking of maybe other fields, and I'm putting you on the spot, and that's why <laughs> this is fun for me because I don't have to be, <laughs> I'm not the architect and I got to go to the architect conferences. You're a civil engineer, or I'm just thinking some other field, and it's just like you build a bridge or you build some very important thing on top of like a major earthquake zone. It's just you would never do, right? You would just, for so many reasons, and I'm ignoring the federal codes or whatever. Yeah. It's sort of your responsibility. It's like, oh, I would never do that. And just in my field, would never allow that. And it's just, I'd make my own personal choice as this private contractor not to do that or building a nuclear power plant on top of a earthquake zone or something like that. I guess there's so much micro level work being done in the field of architecture. It's sort of hard to maybe, I guess, have that peer pressure not to do those things. There is, but there's also, so the the flip side of it is kind of the the inherent liability of the work that we do because we live in a litigious society where you do something and all right, that fire happens or, or something else happens. We, the architects are held to a standard of care. And that standard of care is backwards looking. And so we look at what was done historically. And what we're talking about, you and I, is looking about, you know, different scenarios into the future. And so we're held to something that's tied in history that what would other architects in that time have done? But meanwhile, we're trying to be progressive and advanced and adaptive to future scenarios that we can't always predict. There's this penalty for trying to be progressive inherent in, you know, the liability that you're absorbing, whichever way you step. It's a tricky scenario. All right, we can move a little away from, but that's, I find that fascinating, the <laughs> ethics of these like careers, you know? And I mean, there's lots of micro decisions that have to be made. All right, I'm pivoting quite a bit here and it, it might be a dead end pivot, but have you ever heard of David Benjamin at Columbia? I have not. Someone just gave me, I asked a, f- a few colleagues for a couple of questions to ask. They were talking about, uh, he teaches this architecture at Columbia and he, I guess he has a course called Climate Change, Artificial Intelligence and New Ways of Living. And I was just curious, is AI, because you talk about technology a little bit when you do interviews and such, have you done that or have you heard that kind of making its way into the field of architecture using AI? And Absolutely. Yeah. One of the committees I serve on is a futures collaborative for NCAR, which is the National Council for Architecture Registration Exams. So that council is looking at how is licensure changing? What does the future of licensure look like? What does the future of architecture look like, really? Who who will 
be the future profession and what will they be licensed to do and how is that different today than it was yesterday and how will it be different tomorrow? And so what that future role of the architect, what we're, you know, observing it to to start to shift and, and look like in there are different areas that we're experiencing change and expecting to change more in the future. And that includes certainly sustainability and the climate adaptation resiliency discussion that we were having, but it also includes the integration of technology. So the rise of digital technologies, such as, you know, building information modeling, artificial intelligence, certainly internet of things that will really transform the way architects work and design buildings. And so architects, need to be not only, you know, proficient in these technologies in order to remain competitive in the industry, but also need to understand that the industry is adapting to optimize and leverage these new tools that weren't around before. So that's absolutely a a growing area within. And I'm hoping for the sake of the profession that we are graciously grasping the potential that lies there and with the advancement of technology and how we can use those tools to our advantage as a practice, but also for the greater good of the, you know, the built environment. Yeah. The article I wrote was really fascinating. And most of it wasn't related to climate change. It's talking about using AI that you, you just say some basic commands and it just churns out designs and graphics. And it's just, it's helping architects really visualize things really quickly. And, but then you bring in the climate change and it's just like now factor in five feet of sea level rise and the AI is getting really good. It seems like it might be a really cool tool to nudge. You're talking about in the universities and all that, like it's just going to come. It's going to be kind of built into that. So you might not have to wait so long for that education to happen if AI really is doing it for you. Absolutely. And so one of the kind of the, certainly the opportunities there, no, not disagreeing, but one of the concerns within professional practice is as I mentioned before, we we live in a litigious society of kind of what is the inherent liability with these AI systems that at the end of the day, someone, someone, a person is taking on the responsibility and signing and sealing a document that is asserting that they're protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public using these tools that AI have developed. And so you don't really have control of what the inputs are you only have control of what the outputs are. And so that's a concern and a risk that we'll, as a profession, have to navigate very thoughtfully. Yeah, but I would just get, there's always going to be a role for humans. And part of that will just be to ground truth any sort of output that kind of comes out of it. That's, I hope that'd be part of the process. Absolutely. Another pivot here is that I just did an episode on the Infrastructure Investment Act, a lot of money going toward resilience and adaptation, and then even the Inflation Reduction Act, which is more focused on energy, but still lots of money, grids and such. Is that making a mark within your field? Are people like, all right, here's a huge opportunity. Are you thinking about it? It is. It's making a mark. It's a little, there's a little bit of a lag, I I believe, from the time things get passed to the time they get implemented. (laughs) And so, yeah, flowing down from federal to state to municipal and, and understanding kind of some of the red tape in between and how it actually gets rolled out for implementation for design, you know, engineers and architects to be able to act on. Frankly, we're still working on, FEMA funded Sandy projects that it's funds from over a decade ago that are still navigating red tape to get built. And so that's something I anticipate, even though I, you know, fully support and agree the direction of, you know, the intent of those bills, the practice of when we'll actually get those funds and see the benefit, it's still going to be another five to 10 years. 
Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I, I had a couple of local government folks on and it's been 18 months or so since it passed. And so it's taken that feds that much time just to create their policies and stuff. And so this had Braden K from Tempe, Arizona, and he's just been working with local partners and just prepping themselves to be attractive to apply. And I, I imagine a firm like yours, if you really are thinking about climate change, that they're going to be looking for groups like yours who understand that language because, you know, the, the better that the whole team is is on the same page with real. Anyway, you're probably well situated, but you're right. I think I don't even know if people are literally applying for grants yet because it's just taken so long just to gear up. But another conversation I had said that's actually this is a window where you really should start getting into it, even though you might not be starting construction for two or three years, the grants process will be starting soon. So absolutely. And that, that is something that we've tapped into. In 2020, we joint ventured with a few other firms and focused on establishing a offshore wind and maritime training school in New York City. So that we are, you know, currently under process actually being audited later this month to be GWO certified, which is the global wind organization certification that's required for offshore wind. And we have been looking to some of those grants for workforce development in these fields. Cool. Another pivot. You're very active. You're getting involved with all this and you're being a a leading voice. Let's learn about some of those things because I think I'm still trying to visualize how you guys even communicate with each other. There's architecture magazines or whatever, Mm -hmm. but tell me, I got a few groups here that I want you to tell me about. And there's the, and explain the acronym, AIA National Climate Commission. What's that and what is it doing? So American Institute of Architects is the national organization of, you know, professional architects. And I am on the Resiliency and Adaptation Advisory Group. And so we look at the buildings and communities are subjected to certainly destructive forces from natural and and human-caused hazards. So the forces that are affecting the built environment as as they evolve with climate change and environmental degradation and population growth and, you know, a whole bunch of other, you know, migration, other areas, this alters kind of the long term conditions and demands on design innovation. So AIA, American Institute of Architects, supports and empowers its members to certainly create sustainable and resilient and adaptable communities through design. I mean, so this is a subset of individuals who practice in this space and have an awareness of, you know, new emerging issues, as well as new resources and tools and education to address the the different shocks and stresses and advocate for policies to support these types of new practices, hopefully, you know, providing a greater value to their clients and communities within the practice of architecture. Okay, so you guys come up with recommendations. I don't know if it's in the form of like a white paper report, and if that's the case, or I mean, is it just through conversation? We do, and, and also educational content. So as with many professions, there's continuing education requirements for architects. And so a lot oh, of the okay. educational content that we prepare is focused around resiliency and adaptation. So that was going to ask just how does that get out to people? How does it get out to the rank and file and some small private architecture firm? And so through accreditation, they, they actually can be exposed and see it as an option. Correct. And and as a requirement, they are to maintain their license, have to complete so many continuing education hours. Every state has its different requirements. And some states require certainly different amounts of credits towards health and safety or welfare and how they categorize some of those categories. California is very progressive about acquiring continuing education hours that have to do with the climate and environmental conditions. Again, here's another acronym, and I don't know the space, NAAB and Accredited Architecture Program. What is that? Is that different from AIA? Are they related? So the NAB Accredited Program, I, I mentioned earlier how I went to a five-year undergrad program that enabled me to get licensed without a master's. So that accreditation is for the universities to say that, all right, this five-year program meets the requirements that the individuals that complete this program can sit for an exam after some experience without needing a master's. 
there's different groups and obviously they're communicating somewhat, but is, is AIA the overall kind of association people look to setting standards and all? Is that how it works? Yeah, AIA is the, the organization that embodies all of the practicing architects. And, and not necessarily every architect has to be affiliated or a member of AIA, but it is the national body that is available and many are a part of. So you can be a registered architect and not be a member, but then you don't have access to many of the resources that are made available to the profession. And you've dabbled a bit overseas interacting with some, what's, what's it like with architecture and adaptation, I guess, even in Europe, what's your sense of that? More progressive. And I feel like not even within specific to architecture or engineering or construction, I feel just the, the lifestyle is a lot more aware of what our impact is on the environment and a lot more thoughtful as to not creating, you know, unnecessary waste. But certainly within the practice, within the profession, there are, the intuition is, is more aligned with, you know, natural daylighting and just things that historically, even if you look at the, the city, Cities that they have buildings that have lasted for a lot longer than many of our buildings that we're rebuilding. And it, it's this idea that we're investing and it's not, you know, for me and for my use, and I'm going to flip it and sell it and make a profit. It's for me and my family and the future generations of my family. And so they really see their infrastructure more as investment. You know, I could have asked that in any field, transportation, agriculture, whatever, more yeah. progressive. <laughs> that would just be the answer. More progressive. Yep. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Right. For us. All right. And one other group I just want you to briefly talk about is this YAF and something youth, Youth Summit 30. What's that about? Oh, so Young Architecture Forum is a part, a kind of a subgroup of AIA. And so it looks at, I think, architects that are licensed for less than 10 years. And so I had applied to, it was like Mission 2130. So it's looking at our planet, you know, a little more than 100 years out. And we were given a kind of a design challenge and broken up into groups of what are some of the different considerations that we have planning for the future and what will, you know, the architect's role certainly be in the future, but how will the process of design change and what will our cities really look like at that time? And we did use AI for a lot of the modeling, which was a fun kind of experiment because that wasn't something that I had tried and certainly in professional practice, but this was a great working group to, to start using that kind of a tool. So again, you're my first architect and you actually listened to the podcast too, and I'm putting you on the spot, but were there any topics or episodes that really helped you, that informed you that you're like, okay, this is new information and, and it's going to be beneficial to what, you know, beyond just your, your general curiosity about these topics? I like to think adaptations crossing so many sectors. Were there any episodes that were really just useful to you? So yeah, so many of the episodes, I, I really, they resonated with me. I, I think you've had, have you had more than one with Aaron Sikorsky? Certainly I, I can appreciate and understand yeah. where she's coming from. And I, I believe you had an urban planner from Cornell at one point also certainly resonates, you know, the, the concerns and the social injustices that have unfolded over time. And as a result of, you know, past regulation, and I would say one thing at large that, again, to compare architecture to other professions in kind of an area where we're lacking is you look at the medical profession. And again, there are different specialties and, and doctors are have, you know, different specialty tracks, but there's also this whole research and development arm that doesn't exist within the architecture profession. There are many architects that leave the profession and go and work for vendors and they have their own kind of R&D departments, but collectively as a profession, and especially with regard to, you know, digitization and in future, you know, internet of things and who owns the data and are we, it's hard to manage what you can't measure. And 
as a profession, we're doing things and we're kind of leaving them and, and climate adaptation is not a one and done problem. And so as we do things, we have to understand their impacts, certainly initially during the construction process, but then the longstanding impacts also as in terms of social justice, as well as environmental impacts far beyond, you know, when the ribbon cutting and when it's occupied. And so if we look at other professions and medicine, I think is a good one to look to that we, we don't have a research and development arm and we would do well to have one considering protecting the health, safety and welfare of the built environment kind of now and in the future and protecting for the future means we need to be studying kind of what we're doing in real time and understanding its impacts and as they evolve over time. Well, my next question was related to what do you think an architect in the future is going to look like? And you kind of covered those bases there. And uh, there are any additional things you want to add there, maybe speculate and just go big on it. And I just want to mention that that was Dr. Linda Shy from Cornell that you were mentioning. Oh, yes. People were interested in digging that out. Yeah, that was great a great episode. episode. Great episode. So yeah, I, I mentioned kind of the future role of the architect, I think certainly will include increased focus on sustainability. I hope climate adaptation as well as becoming more popular, although I'll just disclaim it. Sustainability took about 20 years traction within the profession to get to where it is. And it's still kind of just barely scratching the surface. So unfortunately, good things take time. We talked about integration of technology, I think some other areas, and you mentioned the interdisciplinary collaboration required with climate adaptation work. But I, I think as a whole, the architecture practice should anticipate, you know, the role of the architect to have a greater emphasis on that interdisciplinary collaboration. So as we look at the complexities of modern building design and construction that require architects to work very closely with a wide range of professionals. So not only, you know, engineers and construction managers, but the different specialty consultants, the role of the architect, I think, will become more collaborative and more interdisciplinary in nature. Other areas, maybe an increased focus on user experience. I could have a whole nother topic, but the built environment to me, we've talked about protecting the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment. To me, the built environment includes anything that's not natural. So built systems, and that includes digital systems. Systems. And so looking at user experience as a result of our interface with technology and different regulatory frameworks and systems, and certainly there's an opportunity there as well as the broader social impact that, yeah, you've had other episodes focus on. So the world becomes you know more interconnected and there are issues of equity and social justice that become more pressing. And architects, I think, will be increasingly called upon to address broader social, cultural and economic challenges through their designs. Excellent. All right. So last question I ask all my guests is if you could recommend someone to come on the podcast, who would it be? Albert Slap is a founder of Coastal Risk Consulting. And you, you asked me a little bit about tools for looking into the future and, and forecasting you know, future vulnerabilities. And he's created a tool, the Risk Footprint Report, and we use it on a lot of our work. And he's a, a retired environmental attorney. And he comes from the advantage of really wanting not only to identify the risk, but to do something about it. And so we we work very closely together. And I think your listeners would really enjoy understanding kind of his process and what he's looking to continue to do. All right, Dina, this has been fantastic. Great primer on the field. And obviously, there's a lot of directions I can go covering this. And hopefully, you and I can stay in touch about some of the areas that you're working on. And if you even have recommendations that these are topics that I might cover. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dana for coming on the podcast. As you could tell, I really did not know much about even the fundamentals of the architectural sector. It wasn't my original intent, but I love the deep dive on the ethics of architecture as climate change becomes increasingly important to that field. I want to extend my appreciation to Dina for her tireless efforts seeking to drive the evolution of architecture in the face of climate change. Her commitment to advancing the field is inspiring, and I encourage all of you to explore her work further by checking out the show notes. 
Okay, adapters, imagine the potential of showcasing your achievements through a widely acclaimed podcast that boasts a large network of climate and adaptation professionals. Yes, I'm talking about America Adapts and how it offers you the perfect platform to tell your adaptation story and spread your message to a diverse and highly influential audience of climate professionals. By sponsoring a whole episode, you not only have the chance to share your story with the world, but also integrate a podcast episode into your organization's long-term communication strategy. It's time to expand beyond the confines of webinars and white papers, which can often be dry and forgettable. Let's work closely together to identify the experts who best represent the remarkable work your organization is undertaking in adaptation through the power of podcast storytelling. This will not only enable effective communication with your members, board members, and funders, but also leave a lasting impact. The value of podcasts lies in their ability to continue promoting your story long after the initial release, ensuring it remains a critical educational resource for years to come. I am humbled to have collaborated with prestigious partners such as Patel, Natural Resources Defense Council, University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, World Wildlife Fund many times, UCLA, Harvard University, the Trustee of Reservations, and many more. So let's add your organization to this esteemed list. Yes, we can make a significant difference in the world of climate change adaptation. To learn more about the enduring value of podcasts and how they can benefit your organization, please feel free to email me at americadaps at gmail.com. Okay, I'm always hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or the last year, and that means they have missed out on a bountiful archive if they haven't poked around at previous episodes. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. In episode 139, Transformative Climate Adaptation in the United States, Trends and Prospects, I hosted two leading adaptation thinkers, Dr. Suzanne Moser and Dr. Linda Shai. In that episode, we discussed an article they published, Transformative Climate Adaptation in the United States, Trends and Prospects. Yes, the episode is named after the article. They share how transformative adaptation can influence climate equity and justice issues. We also discussed if democratic governments are the best model for transformative adaptation and is the Biden administration prioritizing resilience planning. Also, in a bonus conversation, Judge Alice Hill returned to the podcast to discuss how climate change is not properly included in economic risk planning. Definitely a powerhouse episode. And then check out episode 157, Legislating a National Climate Adaptation Plan. I hosted Cameron Adams, a NOS Marine Policy Fellow, who at the time of the recording was in the office of Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware. Cam was the primary author of a bipartisan bill that would create a position of chief resilience officer who would be responsible for developing a national adaptation plan. Cam shares a history of the legislation, why Congress should work with the executive branch on adaptation issues, its prospects for passage, the details of the legislation. I'm resharing this in light of President Biden's recent announcement of the creation of a national resilience framework, which is the executive branch approach to the national plan. So obviously there has been no legislation passed for a congressional plan, but at least this is some progress. Definitely take a dive in the podcast archive if you're looking for great content and catching up on all things adaptation. Links for these episodes are in my show notes. All right, to wrap this up, as host of American Apps, I'm always eager to connect with my listeners and hear their feedback on the show, whether you want to share your thoughts or suggest a guest. I love hearing from you. Let me know what you do. That is so critically important to me, just knowing what you guys are doing out there and how you benefit from the podcast. Reach out at americadaps at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And also in my last episode, I put a plug. If you haven't forgotten, America Daps is a nonprofit organization. Please consider donating and supporting the podcast so I can keep doing this. I'm sure some of you heard that last appeal when thinking you were going to do it, but then you forgot. Well, here's another chance for you. Links to donate are in the show notes. Thank you for considering. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.